Friends, would you open with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12? We're in Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to start with verse 3. We're going to read the next couple of paragraphs. And actually, as I've been praying and pouring over this passage this week, I've been really nervous to preach this sermon. Our passage is going to delve into suffering. And suffering is such a complex, painful, deep part of the human experience. It's wild and it's unruly and it takes gobs of scripture, chapter after chapter, whole books of scripture dedicated to the subject of suffering that still leave us in mystery and with unanswered questions. The writer to the Hebrews, when he writes to this church and takes a turn to talk about suffering, he takes, as you can imagine, an incredible risk. It is risky for him to talk about these things. It's risky for him to speak about suffering to such a vast group of people who have different relationships with suffering. I mean, imagine the church to which the writer is writing to. As he pens this letter, you've got people in the church, this is possibly in Rome, some of whom are experiencing actual persecution for their faith. They've had property taken away from them. They've endured bodily harm. Some of them have been thrown into prison. You have other people in the church who they suffer, but they don't suffer for persecution's sake. They suffer for their own sin and stupidity. They've done things in which they now are receiving the suffering for as consequences for what they've done. You've got other people in this church who they suffer and they suffer for natural causes. They're sick or they're experiencing pain. You've got some people in the room who suffer deeply and you've got some people in the room of this church who hardly suffer at all. And yet the writer to the Hebrews, he walks in the middle of this major diversity in the stories represented here and he plays this dominant theme of suffering that we're going to read about. By reading this passage, by talking about this passage, we're actually going to take that risk too. You think about the church, this church that's gathered here this morning, and we have a congregation in this room right now who comes with very different experiences of late to the subject of suffering. We've got people in this room right now who they're hardly suffering at all. In fact, you could make the case that they deserve more suffering than they're experiencing. And you've got people in this room who they might have beautiful Christian walks and they suffer deeply at every turn. In this room, right here, right now, you have loss, you have loneliness, you have depression, you have divorce, you have death, you have chronic pain, you have sickness, you have a wild array of stories, and we take two paragraphs and we walk into the middle of that at great risk. I'm going to read this passage and then I'm going to plead with God that over and above anything we say for the next 20 minutes, his Holy Spirit will take these words and he will speak to us as sufferers. Let's do that. This is a spiritual exercise. I'm going to read from Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 3. Hear now God's word. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. 
For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness." For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Let's pray together. Father, I want to pause and I want to pray right now for sufferers in our congregation. There's a way for the evil one to take these words and to drive them away from you to drive them away from the belief that you are good and that you are sovereign. I pray against his work. I pray for the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would shape and change our congregation to know that you love us and you discipline us for our good. We ask that with courage and we ask that with faith and we ask that in confidence in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, here's the central point of our passage. This is the main idea of these paragraphs. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. That's the central prevailing theme. I get that from verse 6. Verse 6 actually gets that from quoting Proverbs chapter 3, verse 12. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. This idea of suffering is going to turn the entire thing upside down if we let it. If we get a hold of this central idea, if it begins to bear fruit in our hearts, we will understand that suffering is not a dark, impersonal force to be avoided at all costs, but it is a personal gift that is given to us for our good all the difference in the world. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. I want us to very carefully take those three words, Lord disciplines love, and I want us to understand what these things are and what these things are absolutely not. So let's take the first one. Let's take the Lord. Number one, this is the Lord who does this and not sinners. You know, I think when you first read this passage at first blush, it can seem like suffering comes from sinners, right? They're the antagonists. They're the one who are doing this. We read that in verse three. Consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility. Sinners hurt Jesus. Wicked people, they made Jesus suffer. We read again in verse four. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. In other words, church, the writer writes, sinners are going to hurt you too. If they hurt Jesus, they are going to do bad things to you because you follow Jesus and because you name Jesus. Sinners, they're going to hurt you. And we read that and we understand those two verses, what happened to Jesus and what happens to us. And we say, okay, I'm beginning to understand this. Suffering exists in the world because sinners roam the world and they do bad things to us and they hurt us. And that is one of the chief reasons that we suffer. God, in the midst of this, his hands are tied. There's little he can do about it. 
What is God going to do if Cain raises up against Abel? What can God do if Pharaoh begins to chase Moses? What can God do if my boss at work continues to overlook me because of his own securities? What can he do if my infant child, she wakes me up in the middle of the night because of her own selfishness? Hurt people hurt people. Bad people do bad things. We understand this suffering exists because of sinners. The writer to the Hebrews says, you're wrong. It might feel like sinners or forces or the devil is chiefly at work, and they may indeed be the guilty parties who will be held responsible for their sin. But make no mistake about this point. Suffering is the righteous, sinless, perfect hand of God. It is the hand of God, and it is perfect, and it is good. That's a heavy truth to absorb and to understand. In fact, there's an entire branch of theology. You can dedicate your entire life, not to theology at large, but to this one narrow branch of theology called theodicy, which basically seeks to answer the question, how can God be good and how can suffering and evil still exist in the world? And the skeptic, he approaches that subject and he says, you actually have to pick your God. You have to pick a God who is sovereign or you have to pick a God who is good, but you can't have it both ways. You can't serve two masters. You need to serve the one and not the other. Which do you want, Christian? Do you want a God who is sovereign? He is completely in control of all things. Nothing happens outside of his will. He holds everything in his hand. No event can befall us except in the mighty hand of God. But this God who is sovereign is not good because he has let very bad things happen to you. Is that the God you serve? Or do you want to choose a God who is good, who is kind, who is benevolent, who is loving, but he does not hold the world in his hands. In fact, there are things that happen outside of his control that he cannot be held responsible for because he is not in control of those things. The skeptic would say, you need to choose which God you are going to serve. The writer to the Hebrews punches a tiptoeing theodicy right in the teeth and says, we're talking about a God here and now who is both good and sovereign. And though it take us our entire life or our entire eternal life to understand this truth, in some mysterious way, we can even see God's goodness in his sovereignty, even when really, really awful things happen. Make no mistake, this is God and not sinners. Number two, This is discipline, to discipline and not to fix. I think it's one thing to learn that God holds all suffering in his hands, like he holds the world in his hands and that involves suffering and so he holds suffering too in his hands in the same way that he holds the oceans and creation and mountains. But it's an entirely other thing to learn. He doesn't just hold it, but he uses suffering. It happens in his hands, by his design, for our good. Now the writer to the Hebrews, he has to repeat this point over and over and over again in our passage because I think it would be very easy to miss this point. So he says in verse five, the discipline of 
the Lord. Verse 6, the Lord disciplines, the Lord chastises. Verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. God's discipline, God's discipline, God's discipline, nine times in seven verses. Suffering is not this unfortunate convergence of events in our life. It is the discipline of God. This is God's discipline. That word discipline that we're using again and again is interesting because it's from the Greek word tutor. And it carries with it the meaning of both teaching and instructing, but also correcting and admonishing. So you have this word that appears in 2 Timothy 3.16, the very familiar passage, all scripture is God-breathed and it is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That word training in 2 Timothy is our word for discipline in Hebrews chapter 12. And it actually works out nicely that the word discipline and disciple are very similar in the English language because they carry that same meaning in the mind of the writer to the the Hebrews. To experience discipline is to undergo discipleship. Now, it's not just discipleship at large, because to be sure, the writer to the Hebrews, he has the very hard suffering side of discipleship in mind when he writes in verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. So discipline is discipleship, but it is suffering discipleship. Discipline is like a pair of pruning shears. Discipline is like a refining fire. It's more pain than pleasantries, but it is done for our discipleship. The writer to the Hebrews, he tells us twice where this entire thing is headed. Suffering, it is discipling us, and this is the aim that God has in mind. Verse 10, he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Verse 11, all discipline seems painful, but later yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God disciplines us so that we will be like God. God is using this to make us holy. Now, I think it's incredibly important to have in our minds what discipline is so that we can guard in our hearts what discipline is not. It is so easy as believers to experience suffering and to begin to connect dots that we think are there, but they're really not there. And so to understand that discipline is a kind of suffering discipleship guards us against these other notions that we have of what discipline is. I want to name two of them that are very common amongst us. And the first one is this. Discipline is not the same thing as fixing. We need to understand that discipline and training is very different than fixing. Discipline is not God's valiant attempt to fix what has gone wrong. Suffering, it doesn't catch God on his heels trying to bring good to a really bad situation. I want to borrow a medical analogy from somebody that won't hold up under a ton of scrutiny, but I think it's helpful for us. This idea of discipline versus fixing is almost like the idea of the surgeon versus the ER doctor. 
Think about those two professions and think about what they're called to do. The surgeon initiates. The surgeon is the one who has a plan and initiates what's about to happen. He uses a scalpel on our body. He knows what he's cutting. He knows the pain he's going to bring, but he also knows the good that he is going to deliver. He initiates what happens to us. That's very different than an ER doctor who reacts to a situation. Something bad has happened outside of his control and it is now presented before him and he's trying to make the best of a bad situation. According to the book of Hebrews, God is a surgeon and not an ER doctor. Suffering is not damage to be fixed, but an instrument to make me holy. That's an enormous difference. The second thing that discipline is not Discipline is not punishment. Discipline is not punishment. Now it is true that God can punish us in this life for sins that we do. We can commit a sin and God can punish us for that sin. We have examples of that in scripture. One of the most powerful is the story of Ananias and Sapphira. In the early church in Acts, this couple, they lied to the Holy Spirit and they were struck dead on the spot. They sinned, they lied, God judged them and executed that judgment. Their suffering was punishment for their sin. We read in 1 Peter 3, 7, that if a husband doesn't honor his wife, his prayers will be hindered. And so men, if we have lousy prayer lives, it is worth asking the question, do I honor and cherish my wife? Is this God's heavy hand on me because I'm not doing what he has called me to do? So there can be that connection between suffering as punishment for a specific sin, but there's also many, many places in scripture that says we cannot readily make that connection between our suffering and what we perceive as punishment for what we're doing wrong. A classic scripture in that vein is John chapter 9. In John chapter 9, you have the story of a man who's born blind and his disciples are confused when they meet him because now they're seeing this incredible amount of suffering, but he was born blind. So did he sin or did his parents sin? They don't know. So they run to Jesus and they say, we don't get it. How can a man be born blind? Was that him? Was that his parents? And Jesus says, it wasn't either. It wasn't his sin. It wasn't his parents' sin. This man was born blind so that the work of God could be displayed. You breathe a sigh of relief that it wasn't a specific sin that can make you blind for the rest of your life, but then you're all of a sudden unsettled because this is the hand of God that has brought this to display his work. Jesus is not saying this man has never sinned. The man born blind has sinned his entire life. He's not saying that his parents didn't sin. They've sinned their entire life. But he is saying, do not draw a line between what has happened to him and a specific punishment for a specific sin because that's not what's happening here in the discipline of God. I've seen a lot of Christian sufferers spend a lot of agonizing hours trying to find the needle of their perceived punishment in the haystack of their sin. I'm suffering. I feel heaviness in my life. What did I do this week, this month, this year in my life that has made me deserve something like this? Discipline does not mean that you've done something wrong and God is now smacking you on the hand for what you've done. Discipline means that you aren't yet like God and God is not finished with you. He is using this to make you like him. 
He's going to refine you and he's going to make you holy. Discipline is not fixing. Discipline is discipleship. Third and finally, we need to understand that when we receive discipline, we are objects of God's love and tenderness and not objects of God's wrath. The Lord disciplines the ones he loves. He disciplines those that he loves and he cares for, not the ones that he disregards and he's angry with and has cast aside. I was thinking about that. I was thinking about the sermon at large, and I actually wrote a very tidy ending to this sermon. We were going to kind of end on a high note and be rallied to come out of here. But as I was reading that, I'm also reading a absolutely withering memoir. It's written by a bulimic alcoholic whose marriage is falling apart. And so I'm reading this memoir and I'm trying to tie into a bow, a sermon on suffering. And even though this woman is not a believer, she has incredible insight into her own suffering and how people have approached her in suffering. And so she writes towards the end of that memoir about the different kinds of people that try to encourage her in her suffering. And she categorizes each of them in categories that we've all experienced in our own life. She's got a category for the shover. She's got a category for the comparer, the person that can say, oh yeah, I've experienced that in this way. The fixer who tries to mend everything. And of course you have the victim who somehow you're sharing your suffering and it's now about them and their own suffering. And she's cuttingly sarcastic about all these people. And so I just want to read the paragraph on the shovel because I think this is very apt for our passage. It's a paragraph, but it's so good. If the receiver of my story is a shover, She listens with nervousness and then hurriedly explains that everything happens for a reason or it's darkest before the dawn or God has a plan for you. Standing inside the wreckage of my marriage is too uncomfortable, so she uses these tired platitudes like a broom to sweep up my shattered life into a tidy pile so that she can sidestep. She needs me to move forward, to make progress, to skip through the hard parts and to get to the happy ending. She needs to edit my story so that it fits inside her story about how good things happen to good people and life is fair and things tend to work out nicely in the end. She puts her hands on my back and shoves me toward the door of hope. She can't stand waiting So she steps into the spotlight and becomes the hero of my story. I wither in the face of her optimism and clarity, and I slink off stage. Wow. Has anybody experienced that premature shove towards the door of hope? Has any of us been the shover who gets nervous around suffering that can't be tied up, and we just want to get this person to the happy ending? What do I do when I read these paragraphs in Hebrews and they sound like a tired platitude in my suffering? What happens when I carry this paragraph and it reads like a broom seeking tidiness or an impatient shove toward the door of hope? The Lord disciplines the one he loves. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. I can already hear the cynicism kind of rising in my own heart. When I experience suffering, I can begin to say to myself, tongue in cheek, oh boy, God must really love me. I'm getting an extra dose of suffering today. This is wonderful. I'm so glad that he disciplines the one he loves. Julie and I have actually uh, 
printed out a passage from scripture, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. We've put it in a prominent place in our kitchen. We hope it becomes a theme of our marriage and our family in this season. But it's that very familiar passage that says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in every circumstance for this is the will of God in Christ for you. That is an absolutely wonderful, wonderful scripture that can totally backfire in sarcasm, right? It's like we gather in the kitchen and there it is on top of the fridge where we can all see it, but the kids are fighting and dinner is burning and the house is falling down around us and we can kind of just grit our teeth and look at each other and say, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, this is wonderful. Um, And truly, the problem in that situation is not 1 Thessalonians 5, right? The problem is us. There's nothing trite about rejoice always. There's nothing trite about two words that snap us to attention in every circumstance to pay heed to the one who sits on the throne over all things. There is absolutely nothing trite about rejoice always. That's a tremendous piece of scripture. But it absolutely oozes with triteness when we come in on Sunday morning and we rev up the worship band and we read the nice parts of scripture and we try to send everybody home with a warm worship experience. It can be trite, but it is not trite. It is not the passage that is trite. It is we who carry it tritely. So it is with the loving, surgical suffering that God gives to each and every one of us. We can be trite about that. Man, we can be so trite about it. We can be sarcastic in our own hearts. We can be impatient with other people in the midst of suffering. We can bully Christian sufferers in the church into smiling and repeating after us, God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. But all of that triteness is not here in the book of Hebrews. It is us and not the God who is presented to us here. The sovereignty of God in suffering is a profound, profound mystery that is wonderful and awful and terrifying and absolutely beautiful all in the same breath. There is a way to receive everything in my life, good or bad, as from God. I can lose my car keys or I can lose a loved one. I can catch a cold or I can be diagnosed with cancer and I can say in faith, the Lord gives things for my good and the Lord takes things away for my good and blessed, blessed, blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's pray together. God, to walk straight into the truth of your sovereignty and your goodness in the same breath almost brings more questions and more pain and more hurt than it answers. And so I pray that you would indeed prove yourself as you say in this passage that you are like a father to your children, that our suffering proves our legitimacy as your children, and that you will show us in all tenderness that you are using this as an instrument in our lives to make us holy. 
Give us courage. Give us rest. Give us trust in the beauty of this promise we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.